the word of God where it says, He is the image, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. I'll pray and then I'll invite Carl to come up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage that we've just read, which would speak about the supremacy of Christ. Father, it's an important passage. And so, Lord, I pray that um, you will be with Carl as he would proclaim Um, this passage to us this morning. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would empower him and that what he would say would be your words with authority. So, Lord, I pray for uh, your blessing on him as he proclaims this word. In Jesus' name, Amen. There's a pen up here. Honestly. Actually, I just wanted to say uh, thanks to all those people, the messages of of support that they gave uh, over this past week in relation to my check shirt. Uh, I was really encouraged. Tony and Wilma uh, and Rowan and Sam actually sent a message from Western Australia to encourage me. And uh, I was really grateful for that. I don't know if this counts as check. It's a little bit of a check shirt, but I don't know. Anyway, but it's hard to get away from that kind of thing. Uh, but more seriously, uh, ben, ben said uh, we're looking here at Colossians again this morning uh, and, and we're asking that question, who is Jesus? Uh, and as Ben said, it's really probably the most important question that you might ask. Uh, If you uh, were to ask somebody on the street who Jesus was, I wonder uh, what kind of answer you might get. Uh, You might get the uh, answer of Ben's friend, an atheist. It's all made up. Uh, You might uh, get the response, Jesus is a great teacher, he's kind of like a a great guru. Uh, You might uh, get the response that Jesus was a crazy heretic. You might even find some people who have never heard of Jesus. Uh, Increasingly that's the case. 
that you that you mention the name Jesus and people wonder who on earth you're talking about. But if somebody was to ask you the question, who is Jesus? I wonder what you would say. What answer would you give? The Messiah. Yeah. You might say he's the Son of God. You might say he died for our sins. There's all kinds of things, isn't there, that you can think of and, uh, you know, interesting to think about the kind of answer that you might give. But here in Colossians, Paul gives us his answer. You know, if, if you were to go up to Paul in the middle of the street and, and say, Paul, who's Jesus? Well, this is a, at least gives us a glimpse of what Paul might say. We're uh, continuing this series through Colossians this morning. Last week we saw that great vision uh, of prayer where Paul uh, thanked God for the faith and the love of the people in uh, in Colossae Uh, and this week uh, Paul goes on, uh, as he's finished last week talking about the Gospel, he goes on to expand on the Gospel by giving us this description of who Jesus is. And Paul really has two things to say. The first thing that he says uh, is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation there in verse 15. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the image of God or that he's the firstborn over all creation? Literally, it says that he is the firstborn of creation. Now, maybe to us that sounds a bit like what Paul is saying is that Jesus is part of the creation, That's what uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses would say. So if you get the Jehovah's Witnesses coming to your door, they'll tell you that Jesus is one of God's creatures. But that's not what Paul is saying. It helps to realise that the term firstborn doesn't only ever mean the one born first. That sounds a bit strange uh, really, but it's true. Uh, Because the firstborn son was the one who would inherit his father's property and his his father's uh, kind of authority and so on, the one who would take over from his father, the term sort of developed a metaphorical meaning. So it came to describe status and position. So in the Old Testament, Israel was called God's firstborn son. All the nations, all the peoples of the earth belonged to God. He made them, but Israel was special. They were his firstborn son. It wasn't that they were born before everybody else, but they were special In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, Christians are described as the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. It's not that uh, all Christians are the firstborn children in their family. Hands up if you are the firstborn son in your family. (laughs) Not quite, Christine. Uh, (laughs) So there's a few, right? But... But we're all still Christians even though we're not the firstborn sons in our families. What does it mean? What does the book of Hebrews mean? It means that we're special, we're privileged, we belong to God, we're honoured. So what does uh, Paul mean here? Is that what Paul means? Is he talking about status or is he talking about being born first? Well, Paul makes it perfectly clear what he means because he goes on to explain Verse 15 is only the beginning of the sentence and verse 16 goes on to explain why Jesus is called the firstborn son. Paul says uh, he is the firstborn over all creation for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Why is Jesus the firstborn? Not because he was created before anything else, but because everything that was created was created by him. That's why he's the firstborn. It's about privilege and status. It's about his power. Every single thing that was created, he made. Actually, uh, Paul's claim is even more substantial than that. In verse 16, he, he literally says that in him all things were created. If you have uh, the new NIV, maybe you'll see that that's how they've translated that verse. Uh, everything was created in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it's kind of a, it's a bit of a strange way to put it, I suppose, for us, but it's really just a shorthand way of saying that everything was made in reference to Christ. Everything was made by his power. Everything was made for his glory. Everything is held together by him as we speak. Everything, whether things in heaven or on earth, things visible or invisible, everything was by Christ, for Christ and is held together by Christ. And if you think for just a moment, that might strike you as a particularly God kind of thing to do. To create a universe and to sustain it and to create it for your glory. And that's Paul's point. Paul's point is that Jesus is God. He's God's son. And in the work, in Jesus' work of creating and sustaining our world, we see God. And in that way, Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is not in the image of God, so we're made in the image of God. Humanity was made in the image of God. But Jesus is not in the image, but he is the image. Jesus is the manifestation of God's glory. The writer of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being. In Jesus' work of creating and maintaining our world, we see God. We catch a glimpse of God's greatness and God's power. When Jesus walked on the earth, when he, when he walked on water, when he healed the sick, when he drove out demons, when he... When he uh, fed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread. When, when he did those things, we caught a glimpse. Humanity caught a glimpse of the glory of God and the greatness of God. When he triumphed over sin on the cross, over the rules and authorities, we caught a glimpse of the greatness and of the power of God. Who is Jesus? Paul says Jesus is the source and the purpose of all life. He's the creator, the ruler and the sustainer and the purpose of all creation. That's quite different, uh, I think, from our natural point of view, from our natural inclination. The temptation uh, for us, I think, is to think that God is a God of interventions. That is, for the most part, we kind of think of the world... Uh, the famous illustration is, is of the world as a clock. It's a, a wind-up clock which is wound up and just let to go. We think of, uh, of God as only coming in when there's trouble, when things need to be fixed. Or we think of God 
as just a God who intervenes to make our life miserable. So the world ticks along happily and then when we sin, God slaps us across the face. Our life falls to bits and we blame God for his lack of compassion. We see one bad day and we think that God is against us. And we forget that actually for 364 days of the year, God's been looking out for us. God's been caring for us and providing for us. And one bad day comes along and we think that God is out to get us. We think that our lives and our world is held together by us. But Paul says, no, it's not held together by you, it's held together by God. God isn't an interventionist God. Jesus doesn't just come in now and then. He's at work all the time. Put up your hand if you're breathing. (laughs) There's a few people I'm a little bit concerned about. If you're breathing, you're breathing because Jesus is enabling you to. He holds us in the palm of his hands. If the world is spinning, hurtling around the sun, it's because Jesus is keeping it there. Oh yes, there's gravity and all those things, but God keeps it going. Jesus sustains us. You see, we might think that we need Jesus to be saved and that's true. But actually it's bigger than that. Paul says we need Jesus every single moment of our lives. He's the source of everything. But not only is Jesus the source of everything, he's the purpose of everything. Everything exists for him. I've just been reading this uh, book about the planets recently Uh, and uh, it's a fascinating book but I came across this interesting fact and that is that the moon is uh, roughly one four hundredth the diameter of the sun, right? So it's 400 times uh, smaller in diameter than the sun but it's also 400 times closer to the earth than the sun is, right? Which means that you get a total lunar eclipse, a total solar eclipse, sorry, when the moon passes in front of the sun because the dimensions are just right so that when the moon passes in front of the sun you get a solar eclipse. Why is that? Is that just an accident? Is it just nice? Isn't that nice? No. Why is it so carefully ordered and structured? Yes, it's so that we can look at it and see and and, and wonder, but it's for the glory of Christ. Why has God made you? You might wonder why God bothered to make you. Why has he made you? He's made you to bring glory to Christ. Why has he given you those gifts, those particular gifts, those strange gifts? He's given them to you so you can bring glory to Christ. Why has God given you those children? those particular children, so that you and they can bring glory to Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? He's the source of life and the purpose of life. The second thing Paul has to say is that uh, is, uh, can be found in verse 18. 
Uh, he says, and he is the head, Jesus is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So we've seen that Jesus is the firstborn in one sense, in terms of creation, and now Paul says, actually, he's the firstborn in another way too. And again, Paul goes on to give the reason. So in verse 19, he says, why? Well, because for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Jesus was the firstborn of creation because he's the source and the purpose, but Jesus is also the firstborn, if you like, of the new creation, the church, God's people, because in him, everyone who trusts in him has been reconciled to Christ through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Christ will present everyone blameless and holy in God's sight. Here's the scenario which Paul is is setting out for us. God created the whole universe in Christ by by Christ's power for uh, the glory of Christ and then we rejected God. We turned away from that. We ignored that. We rebelled against that, that rule of Christ. And then God says, I'm sending that same Jesus into your world to redeem you from your rebellion against him and me. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Here's Christ, he rules over creation and God says, this is what's going to happen, all my fullness will dwell in him, in your midst, among you, to redeem you because of what you've done. We were God's enemies, but in love God sent his son. Jesus redeemed us from our sin by dying on the cross and in doing that, he began, he became the beginning of the church, the firstborn from among the dead, both in time and in honour. He died for us and he rose for us and he will raise us as well. He is the firstborn of the church, not simply because he was first, because he rose from the dead before everyone else, but because our resurrection from the dead comes through him. Who is Jesus? Jesus is not only the source and purpose of all life, he's the source of reconciliation with God. He's the source of blamelessness and holiness and freedom from accusation. Now that might not be a new truth that Jesus is the source of our reconciliation with God, but it's actually one that's really hard to maintain, really hard to hold on to. Uh, In an article this past week under the title Get Ready to be Lance Armstrong's God, Mark Driscoll wrote this. Get ready to be God. Over the next two nights the world will watch as Lance Armstrong enters the celebrity confessional booth organised under the auspices of culture's great high priestess. He will confess his sins, cry his tears and cower in remorse at Oprah's feet seeking mercy from the mother of morality. Meanwhile, we get to play God. We cast our vote through blogging and social media to decide if he's forgiven salvation or must be punished damnation. The entire drama is exceedingly religious with a priestess who ultimately cannot mediate between us and God, unlike Jesus, and a man in pursuit of a forgiveness that cannot save. It's quite profound, isn't it? 
But it's true. What, what was all the commentary about following Lance Armstrong's interview? Was he remorseful enough? Will we forgive him? What was, what, what was the point? He was in pursuit of a forgiveness that cannot save. He wanted our forgiveness. But we don't need our forgiveness. The thing we need most of all is God's. We have this unnerving desire for redemption. But we also have this unnerving desire to find our redemption in every single thing else besides Jesus Christ. It's pretty likely, I suspect, that none of us will ever enter Oprah's confessional booth. But we might enter the confessional booths of our friends or our family and hope that confessing our sins to them will bring the forgiveness that we so desperately need. We might enter the confessional booth of our growth group and hope that sharing our deepest, darkest hurts and disasters with them will somehow reconcile us to God. We might hope that our penance, that we might hope that our cries that we cry and our prayers that we pray, we might hope that the way that we grovel or the way that we flog ourselves and try and afflict ourselves and try and drive ourselves into service to God, we might hope that those things would redeem us. But Paul says, no, no, it won't work. The only source of life and reconciliation and redemption is Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? He's the creator and the head of the universe, the source of all life and the purpose of all life. And he's the creator and the head of his body, the church. So they're the two things that Paul wants to say about Jesus. But I guess the question uh, that's worth asking as well is, why is he saying that? Why is he telling the Colossians that? I mean, surely they know that. They're Christians. They've been converted. They trust in Christ. Why is he bothering to say that again? The reason becomes clearer as you move into the next few verses. In verse 23, Paul says these words, You have been reconciled to Christ if you continue in the faith not moved from the hope held out in the Gospel. He says, once you were alienated from God, you were strangers to God, you've been reconciled to Christ if you hold firm in your faith, not moved from the hope of the Gospel. What Paul wants these Colossian Christians to do is to persevere in their faith. He wants them to keep going. He wants them not to turn away from the Gospel, not to turn away from Jesus Christ. It's true that the Bible says that uh, everyone whom God calls, he also protects. You might know that verse, that famous verse, it's a great verse, where Jesus says that no one can pluck his people out of his hands. He holds on to us so tightly that, that, that he'll never lose us. But at the same time, the Bible also says that we need to persevere. The Bible holds both things together. It says God protects us, we need to persevere. One of the ways 
according to the book of Hebrews, one of the ways that we know that we belong to God is that we do persevere to the end. You might think of the uh, four soils in the parable of the sower. Out of those four, two of them begin uh, the journey. They begin the gospel journey. But only one makes it to the end. It's not always easy, I think, to understand how those two sides fit together. God's protection and our responsibility. But I think there are a few things that we can say about that. The first thing to say is that the Bible always insists that both are true and that we need to hold both of them in tension. The second thing to say is that one of the ways that God makes us persevere is by telling us to persevere, by warning us against the dangers of persevering. God's persevering work is not an irrational work. It's not, uh, it's not magical. God doesn't uh, just make us persevere. God speaks words to us which compel us to persevere. God works through our minds and through our hearts and through our rational processes. He moves us through words to follow him. The third thing to say, uh, the third thing to realise, I suppose, is how we persevere and how we continue in the faith. And that's really what Paul wants to talk about here in Colossians. And the answer, I think, is pretty well expressed in chapter 2, verse 6. Flick over to, uh, to chapter 2, verse 6. In some ways, this gets right to the heart of what this letter is really about. Paul writes to the Colossians and he says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See, how do we persevere in the Christian life? We persevere in the Christian life by maintaining our grasp on Jesus, the source of life of life on this earth and new life through, through him. We begin with Jesus, yes, but we never move on. Jesus is the source and the sustainer of life. Like uh, most other Christians in the history of the world, I struggle to pray. Uh, prayer is, is a great challenge I was encouraged this week listening to uh, some of the talks online from, the, from TCC. Gary Miller gave some talks on prayer. Uh, and I was encouraged to hear that lots of other Christians struggle with prayer as well. But there's two prayers that I never struggle to pray. The first one is that I would love Christ with all my heart. Why is that? That's because loving Christ is probably the hardest thing in life to do. But it's also the thing which is so important. The second prayer that I never have trouble praying is that I wouldn't abandon the gospel. That I wouldn't abandon the gospel, that my friends and my family wouldn't abandon the gospel, that our elders wouldn't abandon the gospel, that you wouldn't abandon the gospel. Why is that? Why is that one of my constant prayers? <laughs> it's partly because I have the happy knack of always imagining the worst uh, and foreseeing every great trouble and possible 
disasters that might happen. But more importantly, it's because that's what God says we need to do. We need to persevere in the faith. And the only source of strength to persevere in the faith is found in the hands of God himself. And we receive that by asking him for it. Actually, those two prayers are very similar, aren't they? I pray that I wouldn't abandon the gospel and I pray that I'd love Christ. Why are they similar? They're similar because the way that we persevere in the gospel is by fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ and by loving him and trusting him and honouring him and revering him. He is the firstborn over all creation. Everything was created in him and by him and for him and is sustained by him. And through him God was pleased to reconcile us, his enemies, to himself through Jesus' blood on the cross. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we are only too aware of our desperate and seemingly never-ending weakness. Lord, you call us to faith and yet we struggle to believe. Lord, you call us to obedience and we fall into sin. Lord, you call us to persevere and we stumble and fall. And yet, Lord, here in these words, Paul holds out to us our great and everlasting hope, the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to flee to him and to find in him strength and all that we need to carry